Hey everyone, I am very excited to present another episode of Founder Stories. On this episode, we have Marty Berger, CEO of Silverstein Properties, one of the largest family-held real estate portfolios in this world. Marty has very humble beginnings, and in our conversation, we discuss his upbringing, how he got started in real estate, being fired from his job, and his path to becoming CEO. There are so many great lessons we can learn in this interview. I hope you enjoy. I want to thank my dear friend Jason for arranging this interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to today's Another Pot Show. Today, I have the distinct honor to introduce you and bring to you a mentor, a dear friend, um, and many other things, Marty Berger. Marty needs no formal introduction. Um, the CEO of Silverstein Properties, worked at multiple, all the top firms here in New York. So, But I want to hear the story from your own personal mouth. So Marty, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, Mar- so Marty, before your 54-year overnight success, yes. take, us, take back. us back to where you're from and what was your upbringing like? Sure. So I grew up on Long Island in Huntington on the border of Nassau and Suffolk County in Suffolk County. I uh, went to public high school and uh, was accepted at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, went there as a freshman in 1983, had no idea what I wanted to do. I knew it had something to do with business, but I also thought about maybe medical school. Um, then my father reminded me that I couldn't stand the sight of blood. Uh, at the end of my freshman year, I transferred into <coughs> uh, Wharton undergrad. Um, so after taking a year of economics and chemistry and a lot of other uh, arts and science courses. Uh, I focused mostly on on business, and I double majored in uh, accounting and finance. Right, right. So they say there's a story going around that while you were at Penn, you bought a property. Did my first real estate deal as a freshman at Penn. I uh, at the end of my freshman year, a friend and I bought a um, a four level house uh, just off campus, um, and we renovated it over the summer and then rented it out to our friends, and we lived there. I eventually bought out that other partner, and at <clears throat> the end of senior year, we sold it and made a nice profit, and I didn't pay rent for three years. Uh, and I got to be landlord to my friends, which is fun and not so much fun. So, 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 so first of all, where did you even get the money from to invest in Well, we had a mortgage, which my father co-signed for, and then uh, my father and my friend's father put a little money in, uh, but it was jointly in all our names, and I ran the house operationally, on a daily basis, I collected rent from my friends. I fixed the washer dryer when it was broken, or the dishwasher, or you know, uh, when we had to put an alarm system in. You know, I had to take care of all that stuff, which I had never done before. Uh, so it was an interesting experience, and I was, you know, on the ground operating a, a property. So it was pretty cool. I can only imagine, like, what type of parties you guys threw in such a house. You know, <laughs> we had some fun times, uh, and you know, I was not from a real estate background. My father was. Uh, is, was a dentist, right, right. and uh, my mom uh, was a, a, a mom and a homemaker, um, and so I had no, you know, formal training, and it was on the job, learning. That's the, that's the best experience possible. So you graduate, and you know your first job, and we're going to run through this because there's many incredible lessons that you have um, that could be provided to others. So your first job is you come out of college and you become a consultant. So I worked for a company called Laventhal and Horweth. Um, One of my real estate professors (coughs) was a partner at Laventhal and Horweth in the Philadelphia office. 
Labenthal at the time was the ninth largest accounting firm in the world. <clears throat> I didn't want to be an accountant even though I majored in accounting and finance, but they had a consulting group, real estate consulting group. Uh, at the time, Labenthal was known as one of the two places you went in the world if you wanted to get uh, a report on a hotel uh, so that you can get a finance. Uh, so they did market studies for hotels. And uh, the group was run by a guy named Bjorn Hansen, and uh, um, his, his second in command was Art Adler. And there were a bunch of other guys like Michael Fishbin and others uh, that are sort of the hotel gurus of today that were all in that group, and they were all hotel uh, <coughs> uh, school graduates from, from Cornell. And uh, I was the only one doing non-hotels. So I got to learn about apartments and garages and office buildings and retail, and I sort of was on the job training, just like uh, when I bought the house in Philly. I taught myself how to do Lotus 123. Many of you don't know what Lotus 123 is, but it was the predecessor. Um, before everyone used Excel, we all used Lotus 123. Um, and I did that for about 18 months, and I realized that um, my clients weren't listening to me. And even though I was a 22-year-old kid, I thought I knew more than they did, um, <clears throat> even though I didn't. But uh, they didn't have to listen to me because I was just a consultant. And so I uh, contacted a headhunter, and I said, I'd really like to be on the principal side of, of real estate. And I was fortunate enough to be hired uh, by Related as their first uh, associate into their development group in, back in 1989. This was March of 1989. And I was hired to be uh, the associate and analyst and everything else I could do for a project uh, for the Computer Associates World Headquarters that they were building out in Long Island. So I ran all the numbers, and I uh, actually became the assistant project manager on one of my, my two bosses, Bobby Giannos. And <clears throat> I was fortunate to have uh, two really great bosses, one whose name is Andy Augenblick, who currently runs uh, the real estate lending program at Emigrant Savings Bank. Um, had a great background from, uh, he went to Dartmouth undergrad and I think Harvard Business School and, uh, and uh, Andy was a McKinsey uh, person and so he, he had a lot of great technical training. What Andy did for me was taught me how to read loan documents, taught me how to read joint venture agreements, brought me to the, the bank meetings. Um, I would do a lot of work and he would take out his red pen and mark everything up. So I got incredible technical training from Andy over time. And then there was Bobby Giannos, and Bobby was <clears throat> sort of the wheeler-dealer uh, right-hand guy to Steve Ross. Um, and uh, he put together the 625 Madison Avenue transaction, which Related bought. And he was the one who found the land out on Long Island for Computer Associates. <clears throat> and at the time, we owned a, a very popular bar in New York City called O-Bar. And so I would sit in Bobby's office and <clears throat> listen to him on the phone with potential equity guys or uh, you know, putting together deals. And then at night, we'd go down to O-Bar, we'd meet these people and, and try to put deals together. So I learned sort of the technical training side from, from Andy and sort of the deal side from Bobby. And it was really a great training ground. And <clears throat> I spent about five years at Related from 89 to 93, 93. And we weren't doing much development. Uh, I love the development side. I got the bug my first day at, at Related. I'm, I'm going to cut you off there for sure. a second. I mean, I don't know what you just said, but I understood, from the way I understood it, you practically, and I think it's incredible for the youngsters and anybody else, even for myself, you inserted yourself into the project, into the table, meaning you got a seat at the table. Andy, you know, first of all, you found an incredible mentor to take you through. And second of all, you got involved in projects that were beyond essentially your scope of what you required to do on the job, and which gave you vast, incredible experience. 
So, so the lesson here is <coughs> related back then was a make of it what you will kind of firm, where there was no glass ceiling. You know, you ran until they pulled you back and said, okay, you've done too much right, now. Right. And so I took that opportunity and, <coughs> and went beyond just being a financial analyst and tried to get involved in marketing and talking to the equity guys and understanding, you know, uh, the, the decisions that they made about buying or selling a property or, or um, you know, learning about development and construction. And um, it was just all-encompassing from public relations to marketing and sales to uh, leasing to uh, finance, of course. And, and it was just, you know, I, I took that opportunity because they gave it to me. Um, today, you know, if you go to related or even like Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley, it's much more structured right, right. than the environment I was in um, because related was a much smaller company back then. We were on one floor at 625 Madison Avenue, yeah, yeah. and today there are, you know, over 2,000 people there. Wow. wow. Well, that's incredible. So you, you're there, and then you decided you wanted to get more on the development side. So you, I'm assuming you called another headhunter. No, no. So my first day at, at Related, um, I was sitting in Bobby Gianna's office at probably six or seven o'clock at night, and he says, uh, "So, do you have any development sites?" And I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, are there any underused sites around where you live?" And I thought about it. And I said, "You know, there's a billiard hall that's uh, <clears throat> about a block away. I lived on 75th between Columbus and Central Park West, and up on Amsterdam and 76th Street was this uh, this billiard hall." And I and, and uh, Bobby said, "Well, let's go." go to the plan room. I said, what's the plan room? He said, so we keep the plans. We go to the plan room. And it's no, no windows, dark room. And he turns on the lights. And then there's this big book called the land book. I said, what's the land book? He says, oh, that's where all the blocks and lots for each of the parcels in New York are. So we open this up. I'd never seen this before. Um, <clears throat> and so we find the block and lot that my thing is on. And, and it shows who owns it and how much they paid for it and you know what the zoning is. And I said, what do we do now? He says, now we call Jesse. I said, who's Jesse? <laughs> Jesse's our zoning attorney. I said, what's a zoning attorney? Well, that's, he's the guy who really interprets this and tells us what we can build there. So we call up Jesse at night, and there's no cell phones back then. This is 1989. And this is before CoStar, Zillow, and everything. Oh, else. way yeah. before any of that yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, we had something else. Uh, uh, I'm trying to remember what it was called. But uh, it, was, it was in a folder and books and a loose leaf, and they'd send you monthly inserts. Anyway, <clears throat> Yale Robbins, I think it was okay, called okay. Yale Robbins. Anyway, so we were, uh, we were on the phone with Jesse, and, and Jesse starts giving us information, and we start sketching something and, you know, just massing. And, and I was like, wow, this is the coolest thing ever. This is what you can build here based on what this guy just told us. And, and so I fell in love with development. And, uh, and for the first couple of years at Related, I was doing a lot of that. <coughs> Computer Associates, I, I was the project manager under David Wine, who was the head of the residential group uh, for the Monterey, which was a, a big 80-20 project. We built multifamily up on 96 and 3rd in the city. Um, and then after we opened that <coughs> in 1990, I think we opened in 91, 92, um, we were in a, in a recession and uh, we weren't building properties and no one was developing anything. In fact, I think the Monterey was the only project that opened in 1992 in New York City that was higher than 12 stories. <clears throat> and so we, uh, we started working on RTC packages and a bunch of other uh, acquisitions. Uh, and I got an unsolicited offer to go to Morgan Stanley to go work partly for their real estate fund, Mesref, and partly to be on the agency side as an investment banker. And so I went through the interview process. And I really didn't want to work on the agency side, but I really wanted to work for Mesref. <clears throat> and I called a friend at Goldman Sachs. Stuart Rothenberg, and I said, hey, what do you think I should do? And Stuart said, well, you know, we can't poach you because you're a client 
of Goldman, but if you're going to leave anyway, don't go to Morgan Stanley, come to Goldman Sachs, and we can give you 100% principal work at the Whitehall Group. So uh, Whitehall had uh, a bunch of funds. They had done, done their first fund, and they were just finishing that fund as I was getting there. So I started in <clears throat> September of 1993, after five years at Related, and uh, we were working on bank portfolios and joint ventures, and we actually backed Chris Jeffries and Millennium and the project that they did up on near Lincoln Center. <clears throat> and it was very interesting, surrounded by brilliant, brilliant people. Um, so I joined in 93. They have their best year ever. I made more money than I ever made in the three <laughs> months I was there in 1993. In 1994, they had their worst year ever. <clears throat> and through trading losses, the firm decided they were going to have a, a, a cut across the whole firm. And so I got called into Dan Nydick's office, and I basically was told that I was the last one in and the first one out. And uh, so I lost my job. Very humbling. I was there 15 months and had a great experience. Uh, Whitehall was doing amazing. We were making infinite returns. But I just got fired <clears throat> just before Thanksgiving. Um, and uh, I spent the next two weeks talking to everyone I knew in the market. So let me ask, like, you know, you were working at Related, a great firm. And then you, you know, your Morgan Stanley wanted you. Then you went to Goldman. They recruited you better. And then all of a sudden you got fired. What you're basically on top of the world, and all of a sudden you fell down here. What were you feeling back then? If you recall and the experiences that you went through. <coughs> it's a humbling experience. Uh, I was married at the time. Uh, my wife uh, at the time was, uh, I'm trying to remember whether she was pregnant or not. We, we, I, I think she was pregnant and she wasn't pregnant. But um, we, uh, it, you know, it was hard. And I spent two weeks sort of, you know, taking ownership of what happened and figuring it out. And over that two-week period, I spoke to so many people that I ended up with 12 job offers. Oh, wow. And they varied differently, all in the real okay. estate sector, from uh, a partner of ours, a Goldman, wanting to recruit me in, in uh, Houston, another one in Atlanta. Um, but the two that were most interesting, um, I talked to Wes Edens, who was at BlackRock. I talked to Tom Salak and John Kukum, who were at Blackstone. They just started their first fund. And then I talked to Mark Lazary, who was, uh, I'm trying to remember what it was called, Amrock back then. Now today it's called Avenues. Mm -hmm. uh, but he had his own fund. And I uh, ended up choosing the Blackrock, um, the Blackstone route. And I started with Blackstone uh, basically three weeks after I was told that I was getting fired at Goldman. <clears throat> so in late November of 94, uh, I started at Blackstone. And I was the first vice president in their group under um, John Kukul and Tom Salak. John Gray was just coming out of the, uh, the analyst pool to become an associate dedicated to real estate. And, uh, and they had just raised their first fund, $345 million, and we were off to the races. And again, <clears throat> very, um, very smart people, surrounded by great people. Steve Schwarzman would come to our Monday morning investment committee meetings, along with a lot of other very brilliant people. And it was a little different, though. Goldman Sachs was almost like, a, a back then, a bunch of investment bankers doing real estate, where <clears throat> here you had a bunch of real estate guys who were from Trammell Crow and J&B investing in real estate. Right, right. And uh, the, that was more what my background was, having spent five years at Related. Uh, I was not an investment banker. I was a real estate guy. Right, right. And so we were back to base. You know, when I was buying bank portfolios at Goldman Sachs, we, we would see... 20, 30, 40% of the, the assets and just buy it based on a regression analysis. Uh, and if we were lucky, we won it and then we would close it in a month and we'd own 80 properties. Um, at, uh, at Blackstone, we were actually underwriting 
the properties and their comps, and I knew the markets, Cole, and I knew all the brokers in the market, I knew the spaces, and so it was very, it was back to basics of real estate 101. Wow. You know, it's funny to hear, you know, all the names that you're mentioning, um, the people that you sort of grew up in the ranks from, which are all the CEOs and all the top executives for all the real estate firms, it's incredible to hear the humbling beginnings that everyone took, started from, you know, you were there when Jonathan Gray was becoming out an analyst, now he's the CEO of, uh, of almost a Blackstone, and all the other people, that come. it's just incredible to hear the, you know, the beginnings. So you're at Blackstone, and then you were there for my understanding, how many years were you there for? I was at Blackstone for two and a half years. Um, <clears throat> I really enjoyed being there. The deals were pretty cool, but I still had this hankering to do um, development yeah, deals. And I, and I kept in very close touch with Jeff Blau, who uh, started a year after me at Related and uh, started to do some developments again because the market had changed. And, um, you know, about two years into Blackstone, I got a call from Steve Ross saying, you know, you know, would you consider coming back to, to start uh, in a mixed-use group that we're putting together? And so I got to know a guy named Ken Himmel, who was one of the best mixed-use developers in the world. And <clears throat> um, he had put together a whole bunch of deals with Stephen that they wanted to work on together. And uh, after two and a half years, I went to John Kukrell and Tom Salak, and I said, look, we, you know, we took three development deals to, to a committee that Blackstone doesn't really want to do development deals. I'm a developer. Uh, I'd like to leave on really good terms, and I did, and I went back to Related, uh, where I spent another 10 years. On my way out of Blackstone, it was a, <clears throat> a very good process. Uh, I wasn't going to a competitor. I left because I wanted to um, you know, build stuff, and they understood that, and, and so they let me keep all my partnership interests, and uh, we stayed in touch, and, and it, even today, it's just a great relationship that I have with, with John Kukrell and John Gray and others uh, that were there. And, uh, and I got to work with a lot of the guys that are still there today, like Frank Cohen. Uh, I actually hired Ken Kaplan. His first day was my last day. Um, <clears throat> and he's, I think he's one of the two co-heads of the New York group now. And uh, Chad Pike uh, I brought over from Morgan Stanley. So it was <clears throat> a really great experience to spend time with all those folks and stay in touch with them even today. Um, so I go back to Related, <clears throat> and I uh, get to know Ken Himmel, and um, just a you know, fabulous developer. And I got to really work on some cool projects like Time Warner Center, right. City Place, and West Palm Beach, and, and a bunch of others. Uh, and eventually, I went down to D.C. for Related and opened their, their D.C. office to work on a big project. Uh, and then I opened our Las Vegas office. <clears throat> I spent um, three and a half years going back and forth to Las Vegas for Related. We built about five million square feet out there. Uh, and then we were going to build a whole bunch of residential buildings. The market changed. We sold all the land that we, we put up. Uh, we had bought and made a whole bunch of money, came back to New York, and decided to start my own firm. Um, and I didn't formally leave Related right away. We had an agreement. I stayed there for another six months working on closing out those deals. And then they were nice enough to allow me to keep office space for another two years there. <coughs> they, mu they must have really liked you. So through the end of 2008, I was really still officing at Related. But I had started my own company. It was called Artisan Real Estate Ventures. I was doing two things. I was developing in the Caribbean uh, on Anguilla and um, uh, St. Martin, and I was buying multifamily assets in Las Vegas because I had a thesis about uh, people moving to Las Vegas. The, they had 8,000 people moving there a month, and they were building enough multifamily to take, uh, to take on that, that population increase. 
And then obviously the famous story goes that you were in Vegas one day. You know, you're sitting at the roulette table playing some black, playing something over there, and you get this mysterious call on your phone. Well, I wasn't at the roulette table, <laughs> but <coughs> I was driving around. I had started a bunch of service businesses in, in Las Vegas after the market crashed there. And <clears throat> we were uh, working on a lot of other people's uh, busted condo projects and whatever else. And I got a call from Headhunter <clears throat> regarding uh, Larry Silverstein's successor position. And uh, as I was uh, thinking through it and helping the Headhunter think about who might be <clears throat> great for this position, I said, wait a second, I should come back and interview. And she said, I was wondering when you would get to that point. <laughs> and so I came back. This was May of 2009. <clears throat> um, and met with Larry for about three and a half hours. I met with uh, our chief operating officer and now vice chairman, Mickey Cooperman, for about three hours. And, um, and they let me know that they had 12 candidates and you know there, there were about seven that they really met in depth with. And um, after my second meeting with them, they, they wanted to make a deal with me. And uh, so I came back every other week for about two months meeting with Mickey Cooperman and really figuring out how this would all work. And I'd shut down my business and come over here. And um, Mickey uh, and Larry came to me and said, you know, you're a little bit on the younger end for what we expected. This was, <clears throat> again, 2009, so I was 34 or 44. I was 44. I was 44, sorry. 30, 30, I, was, I was 44. <laughs> um, they were looking for someone with more gray hair, even though I've got a lot of gray hair right now. Um, I was 44. And they said, uh, you know, we'd really like it if you started as an executive vice president not as a ceo i said uh are you going to pay me any differently and they said no i said are my responsibilities any different they said no i said you can call me janitor i don't care <laughs> and so <clears throat> i started as an executive vice president and we sort of had a, a a handshake agreement that we'd see how it goes for the first two years um and so two years into it uh so this is 2010 to the end of 2011 larry came to me and said marty this is working out better than I expected. I hope you're enjoying it too. I only have one problem. I said, what's that, Larry? He says, I don't want to retire. I said, Larry, no one wants to retire. I mean, if Larry Silverstein's in the office, I can get a meeting with anybody. And I enjoy working with him, and he's just this ball of energy. And so <clears throat> we agreed for the next two years that we'd be co-CEOs. I was like, wow, I'm co-CEO with Larry Silverstein. How cool is that? So in 2012 and 13, we were co-CEOs, and at the end of 2013, I became the CEO, the sole CEO, and Larry became chairman of the firm. <clears throat> the humility that you have in order to, first of all, stick around for two years and not be called the CEO and be the janitor, even though you were recruited to be the CEO, to be co-CEO, you know, most people don't have that. Most people would jump at this, I want to be the sole CEO. How important is it to have humility in any job, or specifically in the job as a CEO when you have multiple hundreds of people working under you? Look, again, I, I, I came from, uh, from humble beginnings. Um, I met a lot of the criteria that Larry and Mickey were looking for. They were looking for someone that had residential experience. They were looking for someone that had um, uh, office experience. They were looking for someone who was both on the development side and the acquisition side. But most importantly, they were looking for someone who would fit into a family environment. And they didn't want someone who was going to come in here and say, this is my show, get rid of all these people, I'm bringing in my own crew. And that wasn't, that wasn't who I was, and they knew that. And so um, it's been a fantastic relationship from the start. It's now been over 10 years. And, uh, and I'm part of the family. Um, not, you know, legally, but, you know, on a daily basis, we work together, we live together, and it's really been fantastic to be a part of the Silverstein organization and part of the lives of everyone here. 
Wow. Wow. So then tell me about this family culture you have here. You know, I had the opportunity to speak to um, one of the people that work here when I was waiting for you. And she told me she loves it here, absolutely loves it here. And it's like a family. And while we were speaking, Larry comes by and he's like, good night, dear. Have a great night. I'm like, he calls you dear all the time. He's like, yeah, he calls everyone dear. He's like, treats everyone like their own children. That's who he is. How do you <coughs> b- go about building such a culture and environment here in a place where most places in real estate or in general is like top-notch type, you know? You know, you know it's really simple. It comes down to two things. It comes down to caring and it comes down to communication. You know, if you care about your employees, you listen to them and you figure out what's important to them and, and you give a damn. Whether it's advancing their education or advancing their career or giving them personal time or whatever it is, you know, that's what we do. And, and then the communication is very important. We communicate back what we're thinking at the top level. Here's the strategy of the firm. Here's the businesses we think we're going to expand in. Here's what we look at in the future. And here's some of the projects we're working on that may affect your everyday lives in, at, at work here at Silverstein. And so we have these company-wide meetings on a quarterly basis where everyone's invited. And um, we sit up there. There's four of us that really run the firm that we, we talk to, to each other about what's happening. And everyone can participate. And uh, so it's really about caring and communication in my, in my view. Wow. <clears throat> so then you had the chance, obviously, so learning all those principles from Larry and Vicky. Then you also work for Stephen at, at Related. You work for, you know, Stephen also at Blackstone. And you also had the opportunity to be at Goldman. So all these people are, you know, usually right now the icons. You know, for example, you know, children these days are not looking up to celebrities and sports stars. They're looking up, I want to be the next Stephen Schwartzman. I want to be the next Larry Silverstein. That's what they're looking up to. You had the opportunity. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, it, it, it sounds like a stellar resume. You know, Goldman, Blackstone, Related, <coughs> Silverstein. Um, it's been a privilege to work with the people that I've worked with over time. And it's been a privilege to be able to spend time and work on the projects that I got to work on. Because working on Time Warner Center, working on the World Trade Center, right, right. that's really cool. Like, I, I don't, it doesn't fall short on me. I wake up every morning excited to come to work because I'm getting to work on this stuff. You know, right out the window, we built the Four Seasons in Tribeca. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the coolest buildings. And I get to stare at it every day. You know, when I got here, it was a hole in the ground. So it's, uh, development still excites me. And, and to work on such market-changing, fantastic, complicated projects is, gets everyone's blood here you know, boiling and going. And, and it's just it's a lot of fun. And totally. So then what do you tell a new college grad that's coming out of college that has all these you know, viewpoints and the way how the world should work? What would you tell them coming out, looking at the whole entire world? So I, I sit on advisory boards for, um, for the Zellery Center at, at, at Penn, at Wharton, uh, at Cornell, at NYU, Shack, and uh, also I'm involved with the Fisher Center at the Haas School of Berkeley. So I see students every week. There's always one, two, three, or four students coming through here every week, and I, I make time for them. One of the most important things I tell them is, uh, look, you're young, you're smart, you're going to work your tails off. Figure out what you like to do. Because there's nothing worse than working really hard and not enjoying what you do. So while you're young and before you have lots of responsibilities, you know, figure out what it is you like to do. And you know, if, if, you, if you're doing something, you're working very hard and you're not enjoying it, try something else. Right, right. I mean, there's nothing better than that. And you're lucky enough that you were able to find that real estate from a young age and everything. And, and the rest is common sense. You know, don't burn your bridges. You, you never know when someone else that you might have screwed in business is going to be on the next deal, and then you're screwed. And so I've made it a point in my career to not have people not like me. And if I find out that someone has an issue with me, I call them up. And I said, hey, 
we're all in this for the long haul. So if you have an issue with me, I want to fix it because I don't want someone mad at me that might be that might affect my next loan or might affect my next joint venture or might affect a leasing deal or whatever. Um, and it's not even that I'm worried about the business side of it. I'm just not the kind of person that likes to, to know that people don't like me. So uh, it's not an insecurity thing. I just, you know, I, if I've done something wrong, I want to know about it and I want to be able to fix it. Which brings you to, you know, it's essentially effective communication and feedback. You know, as a CEO, I'm assuming you're probably giving a tremendous amount of feedback here in the company. How should such a structure be, play, be t- done? How do you have to do it? Well, first, <clears throat> if you're doing a lot of things, you can't be good at everything. So you better have really good people under you. And the level of expertise <clears throat> of the folks that we have here at Silverstein is just second to none. Um, and so I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have amazing people in each of the groups <clears throat> that I work with. So we have a lot of different strategies. We, we were developers. You know, We have an unbelievable development team. What does that mean? It means we have great development guys. We have great construction guys. We have great design guys. We have great project managers. We have great analysts and deal guys. Um, you know, we're also on the acquisition side. And to be on the acquisition side, we have great deal guys that acquire them. But once we do that, we have to have great operational people. We have to have great leasing people if it's an office building or a residential building. We have to have great marketing people. We have to have great risk management people and great finance people. And so I can't do every one of those. And I'm not great at every one of those things. Uh, but we have people that are the best in their industry in each one of those fields. And if I can communicate on a daily basis with each one of those and know what we're doing and, and cover it all, then I'm doing my job, they're doing their job, and together we're, we're you know, creating something. That's incredible. You know, delegation, communication, putting the right people in the right place, which is essentially, you know, the job of the CEO. You know, so walk me through, like, your daily schedule. What, do you, what would you say, I guess? Who's the CEO that you look up to that's his effective CEO that you try to model besides, obviously, creating your own style? You know, I, again, I've been so fortunate to work with great people like Steve Ross and Larry Silverstein and, <clears throat> and Steve Schwarzman and others. Um, I, I've never tried to model myself after anyone. <clears throat> um, in fact, I never thought that it would get to that level. I, I just always put my head down and did the work that I was supposed to do and, and tried to go above it. That's what I tell my son who's in the business. I say, go above and beyond what's expected of you. And that's what I've always tried to do. So if I'm working on a deal, and I've got to come up with some financial analysis. When you're done with the financial analysis, now try to interpret that financial analysis and, and explain to whoever's waiting for it, whether it's an investor or your boss or someone else, why, you know, what the re- not just what the results are, but what you think of the results and what you think you should do because of those results um, and how those results might change if you do something an alternative way. And so it's going above and beyond. And uh, that's how I try to, I don't, I don't live my life try to emulate someone else. Um, You know, I was with a whole bunch of people in in Europe this summer, and we were all going around the table saying, if you can be any age right now and go back in time, you want to be 18, you want to be 30, what was the age you want to be? And I said, you know what, I'm 54, I want to be 54 right now. I'm loving my life right now. I like my job, I love my wife, I love my kids. Um, But, uh, you know, my whole balance of life right now is fantastic. I, I, I work very hard, I play harder. And, and, you know, still able to do fantastic things and, uh, and help Larry run this great company. Wow, wow, that's absolutely incredible. So then what would you say are some non-obvious habits that have made you better? Non-obvious habits. I'm not sure how to answer that. <laughs> <coughs> um, 
You know, I try not to get into too much trouble. <laughs> I, I exercise every day. Uh, I, I <coughs> see doctors regularly and take care of myself. Um, try not to beat up my body too much unless I'm heli skiing. <coughs> I love my kids. I stay in touch with them. I, I, I spend a lot of time with my wife. Um, you know, I, I just, uh, you know, I don't smoke. I don't drink too much. I don't do drugs. Try not, try not. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely drink, just not too much. No, it's just, uh, it's, it's clean living. And, and if you can do fun things while you're doing it, you know, I just took my kids heli skiing, my wow, two sons, wow. my two older sons. And uh, it's the first time the three of us ever got to do that together. I went with a friend and his two sons, so there were six of us. We've been talking about this for a decade, and wow. we got to do it, and, and that was great. And, you know, we should do this every year because it's just, how, 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 who gets to do that? That's just privilege, you know. Wow, wow. What took so long? Why a decade? First of all, I, it's very expensive, so I couldn't oh, afford okay. it back then. Second of all, the, they're busy in their lives. I'm sure, busy sure. in my life, and it just doesn't happen every day. It was a good experience? It was fantastic. Wow. wow, that's amazing. You know, it's so funny because... You know, I'm blessed that I have the opportunity to interact and meet a tremendous amount of people, you know, similar positions and bring your stories to the people to, you know, to learn from you guys. Um, and me sitting with you, I'm totally inspired about you're so down to earth, so full humility, giving credit to where credit is deserved. You know, it's all about the other person, how to be, you know, take care of yourself. Not, I am totally amazed. I'm like, I'm blown away. There's no reason to be pompous. I mean, I don't have time for people like that. And, and there are many, 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 many much wealthier people than me um, who are just as down to earth as I am. And, and that's, that's who I love to spend my time with, people who are down to earth and cool and just, you know, <clears throat> that don't take life too seriously. Because if you can't laugh at, at yourself, then it's not worth it. It's just, uh, you know, it's just a philosophy of mine. It's, it's, you can't sweat the small stuff. Um, I don't know why anyone should think they're better than someone else. We all put our pants on the same way. I'm no better than anyone else. I don't deserve anything more than anyone else. Anything I have today, I've earned on my own, um, and I'm very proud of that. <coughs> um, and I don't have time for, you know, I won't spend time with people who think they're, they're better than everyone else. It's just not worth it. And so I wouldn't act that way either. Um, I want to be treated the way I would treat other, I should, I treat people the way I want to be treated. And you know, that's why I'm here with you. Wow. Wow. Oh, thank you. So Marty Berger, graduating college, has the whole world in front of him. Barista Starbucks, baseball player, you know, could go to Blackstone, go wherever he wants. What message do we tell them? The sad part is I don't think there was Starbucks back then. You know, look, I, I, again, I didn't know what, really what I wanted to do. I, I um, as a senior in college, interviewed up and down the wazoo from investment banking to, you know, finance to this, to that. And um, I just fell into this. You know, I, I knew I had uh, a liking of the real estate industry because of my little deal that I did in Philadelphia way back when I was uh, <clears throat> a freshman in college. Um, and I was fortunate to, to land at my second job at Related and really get that experience with those two mentors. Uh, um, and I'm in very fortunate to work on all these great projects and meet all these great people and spend time with them and learn from them. Um, but, you know, a little bit of it was luck. I fell into it. Uh, and, and by the way, like I said to the, the young students that I meet, didn't love my first job, so I did something about it. 
I was working crazy hours and didn't love it. Um, I've loved every job I've had since, and it's been terrific. <clears throat> wow, that's absolutely amazing. So, like, hard work, get a seat at the table, don't sweat the small stuff, the small stuff. Just be a kind guy. Like I always say, it doesn't say in the Bible anywhere, thy shall be an asshole. Cost you nothing to be a nice guy. Cost you nothing. nothing. And then it returns a favor. I mean, Marty, I could go on for another hour talking to you. And, you know, so much conver- questions I have. And I know this conversation is just beginning. But I want to be cautious of your time. And I want to thank you so, so much for doing this. Thank you for sharing all this insight. There's no doubt in my mind that multiple, multiple people are going to benefit from this and learn from you. Thank you. I, I would stay here for another hour with you, but I have a beautiful wife that oh, I have the privilege of going home to, so I'm going to go do that. You can invite her, invite her to come on the podcast too. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.